Let's pray. Father, as we have sung of your wonderful glory, we thank you for what you have accomplished of salvation in each of our lives. We praise you, God, for your mercies that have been made new to us this morning. We thank you for the view of creation as we looked out today and we were able to see your goodness and your hand in each of our lives and waking us up this morning. And as we come to this hour of worship together with your people, I pray that you would open our eyes to see the truth of your word, that you would open our minds to really think upon it and our hearts to love it, God, and that you would that you would work in us and through us and that you would do the work of, of conviction and the work of encouragement and the work of exhortation so that we might praise you because, Lord, it's all about you. And so we worship you this morning. We desire to worship you in spirit and in truth. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> If you have your copy of the Word of God, be it a hard copy or even a digital copy, I want to invite you to open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 6, and we will resume our time in, uh, in John. We, we've taken a break for about two months now, and we were out of John, and we had walked through an Advent series in Isaiah, we had walked through a Biblical Stewardship series uh, with uh, various selected passages Uh, throughout scripture and now we will return to our study in John when we left John we finished at verse 15 of chapter 6 and John chapter 6 verses 1 through 15 was the the feeding of the 5,000 but before we look at verse 15 through verse 21 this morning I, I I wanted to highlight just a couple of things and bring us up to speed with where we were since it's been two months or so since we've even uh, looked in the Gospel of John together during this time. And so the, the title of the message this morning is Seeing Jesus as Sovereign Lord. And I think that's really what Jesus is teaching His disciples as He is uh, leading them and discipling them, instructing them. He's, he's teaching them to see Him for who He is. That's the, that's the point of what He's doing with His disciples. He is coming and He's instructing them and helping them to see that He has come not just to be a miracle worker, not just to be one who satisfies physical needs. He has come to literally restore the relationship that was lost between God and His people when sin entered the world. And so Jesus is coming to show that He is the one who is the Savior. He is the one, the promised Messiah, who will restore this relationship between God and man. And so when we approach the Gospel of John, if you remember, chapter 1 is the prologue that John just establishes who Jesus is right from the beginning, that He is the second person of the Trinity, there's God the Father, God the Son. They are, uh, they are distinct in person, but one in unity and in essence. They are the same. In the beginning was, with God. In the beginning was God. Uh, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. 
So there is this equality of of eternality between God the Father and and God the Son. And then we see Christ come down in the incarnation in John 1.14. And he he walks among the people of the earth, walks among his creation. There's the the forerunner, John the Baptist, who's spoken of in John chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. And we see him as one who who gives us an example of of a witness, of a testimony, one who is proclaiming the word of God. One is proclaiming the coming of the Messiah. And then in chapter 1 through 11, there is what's known as the book of signs for, uh, for John. John writes the book of signs and he's showing us the signs that Christ does in order to point to his sovereignty, in order to point, point to the reality that God has visited his people, that Jesus the Son, has, or God the Son, has stepped down into creation and he manifests his power... And he manifests his works in order, in order to draw people to the Father, in order to glorify the Father. For he himself says, I can do nothing unless the Father reveals it to me and tells me what to do. And so I just want to quickly walk through the signs leading up to this morning, the fifth sign that we'll see where Jesus walks on the water. But even as we'll see in the fifth sign, John's account is completely different than Matthew's account. Sign, the first sign was in chapter 2, where Jesus turned the water into wine at the wedding feast of Cana. If you remember, the, 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 the wine had ran out, and the head waiter comes to Jesus, uh, or the head waiter comes and says, we're out of wine. Mary hears, tells Jesus, and Jesus says, why do you bother me with this? It's not yet my time. And then Jesus goes, and he, he tells the servant to go and draw water out, and then to draw from that water from the cleansing jars and bring it to the head waiter. And when he does, the head waiter exclaims, you save the best for last, indicating that man's best doesn't match the glorious standard of Christ's best, of what Christ provides. In Christ, all things are abundantly enjoyable. They're they're infinitely better and they're gloriously eternal. That is the point of what that miracle is teaching us, that sign is teaching us. And so we see in Jesus one who is both creator and transformer. The one who creates and transforms. second picture we have in the second sign is in chapter 4 where Jesus heals a nobleman's son. And he shows by the power of his word that that he himself brings healing to sickness and restores life when it's at the brink of death. We learn from the nobleman that faith is about believing and trusting in what Christ says, knowing that what he speaks, what he says is sufficient. And so when Christ says, your son is healed, go. He believes, he goes and he finds out that it was exactly as Jesus had said. The third sign in chapter 5 was where Jesus healed the lame man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. He had been laying beside the pool waiting to get in so that when the water was stirred, or so it says, when the water was stirred, that there were healing agents in the water and that the lame would be healed or whoever made it in first would be healed. Jesus approached that one man out of the many laying there. And as he came up to him, he asked him, he said, do you want to be made well? And what the man, how the man responds is instructive for us because the man responds by, 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 by saying really that he, he doesn't have any ability to be healed. He doesn't answer the question. He could only respond by speaking of his inability to be healed. 
It wasn't possible for him to be healed because he had no means of of getting into the water. He didn't have anyone to put him into the water. And so Jesus told him, pick up your pallet and walk. He picked up his pallet and he walked. And it was on the Sabbath. And after this man had been rebuked for carrying his pallet on the Sabbath, Jesus finds him in the temple. And when he finds him in the temple, he tells him, behold, do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. And Jesus shows us in the same manner which he heals the physical infirmities of man, so he heals the sin-sick soul of man. He redeems man. He heals man in his worst condition when he is unable, unable to come to by himself, by his own power, of his own will even, that we see Jesus going to this man and, and healing him and then charging him, sin no longer, that even Christ himself, he, he heals the sin-sick soul of man. Well, in sign four... Chapter 6, Jesus has fed 5,000. And in the feeding of the 5,000, we recounted that um, more than likely it was probably 15,000. Could have even been upwards of 20,000 people that would be there. But 5,000 numbered the, the heads of men who were there. And as he feeds the multitude that day, he makes a point. Jesus makes a point by asking his disciples, where are we to buy bread to feed so many now, for, for 10 people, the disciples probably could have anted up out of their own pocket and said, well, I can, I can pay for 10. Or, or maybe even for 100, the disciples all could have come together and pooled their resources, right, and said, well, well we can pay for 100. But 5,000? That's impossible. There's no... In fact, Peter says, or one of the disciples says, uh, Philip, it was... Uh, It was Philip who answered and said, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient in order to feed all these people. In other words, we can't afford it. We don't have enough money. It's impossible. And that was exactly the point. Only God could provide for all of these people who were there. It would call for a miracle. And Jesus shows his disciples and the crowd that he's the one who can and does supply abundantly. Jesus shows the disciples and the crowd that he is the creator and the one who can truly satisfy the souls of people. The bread that he provides is bread that really is himself that will satisfy the souls of people. That's where he's going. That's where John's taking us in chapter 6. So these signs, as John points out, call our attention to man's greatest need. And that is the need for a savior, the need to know God and to be in relationship with God. That is man's greatest need. Since the fall in the garden through sin entering the world, man's greatest need has been to be reconciled to God. That's the greatest need of every individual that lives, breathes, walks the earth today. It is to be reconciled to God, whether a person recognizes that or not. It is our greatest need. It is what drives us to seek for pleasure and satisfaction in anything or everything in this world. This need for a relationship with God. And as we reflect over chapter 6, 1 through 15, as we get into verses 15 through 21, I want to invite you this morning to enter into the world of the first century. But before we do... uh, Let's read in verses 15 through 21, and you'll see the different account from the Gospel of Matthew. Beginning in verse 15. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force, to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. 
Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. And after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea of Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Then when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Immediately the boat was at the land. Uh, So they were willing to receive him, excuse me, into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. I just want to invite you for a minute to enter into the first first world, the, the, the first century, um, and, and, and think for a moment about what things must have been like. Think about the, uh, the arid countryside and a simpler way of life. They didn't have the modern-day conveniences of ovens and, and grocery stores. There was no running water. There was no plumbing, right? There were, there were no vehicles, certainly. The mode of travel was primarily one's feet. Consider going out into the fields daily in order to pick grain and then to come back and, and sift, uh, sift the grain and, and, and to, uh, to go through the grain and to then have to prepare a meal from taking the grain and either sifting it or, or grinding it, crushing it. Your daily activities would really center around these kind of things, going to the well to draw, to draw water, building a fire to cook over. It's a very different way of life, a way of life that requires a, a different type of, of hard labor. Think back into the first century or, or conjure up in your mind what you can to think of first century, a first century world and culture. Now imagine with me, if you will, that you're on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and you see this man that you've heard so much about. You see his, he and his 12 disciples with him and you've heard rumors You've heard rumors of his healing power, but you've never really seen his hand at work. Now, you've forsaken the daily routines that that you need to take care of so that you can come and catch a glimpse of this man who's named Jesus, who, who you've heard is by the sea. And as you're there, you've been listening to him for, for quite some time, and you've, you've heard him teaching. And as he's teaching, you, you really begin to kind of experience this, this natural draw to him. You've never heard anyone teach with such authority and such power like this man. Then all of a sudden you're told to sit down and you're grouped with others by fifties or by hundreds on the grass in the field. And, and then you see this man take a few fish and a few bread, a few loaves of bread. And then he multiplies it to feed you and the 5,000 or the 15,000 that are, that are gathered with you there. And as you eat the bread and you eat the fish, your stomach is filled. It says your appetite is satisfied. And you're certain that you have just witnessed a miracle. I mean, you have just seen a miracle unfold before your eyes. In fact, they picked up 12 loaves of bread and fish afterward. And you realize this man has met your greatest need. Or so you think he has. Then within moments, there's a stirring and a mummering amidst the crowd. And Jesus and his disciples, they they begin to retreat. But everyone around you wants to come and to take Jesus by force and to make him king. They're ready to begin a political revolution. They're ready to overthrow Rome. 
They begin to think this man is the promised one who will, who will meet our greatest needs. He, he feeds our hunger. He heals our sickness and our infirmities. He will deliver us from oppression. This is the one that we've been waiting for. They make the connection between verse 15 and back in Deuteronomy 18 where they see this one Messiah as the prophet who would come and uh, like, like, like Moses who led them out of, of, of the exodus or led them out of Egypt through the Exodus, they, they see the Passover time, it's at hand. I mean, all the signs are pointing in that direction. They're mindful of the 40 years in the wilderness where, uh, where Moses has led the people and God has provided manna. And here, lo and behold, is one who has just provided manna to feed so many with so little. You see, all the signs are pointing and indicating this is the one Well, this is the context in which Jesus tells his disciples to get in the boat and leave. Why would he do that? I mean, everything seemed to be going right according to the disciples. He tells them, get in the boat and leave. And then he himself dismisses the crowd. He retreats to the mountain to be alone. We don't have that detail necessarily in Matthew's account. But we do have that detail in John's account in verse 15. So Jesus, perceiving they were intending to come and take him by force, To make him king, he withdrew to the mountain by himself alone. He needed to go and spend time in prayer and communion with the Father. And so I I think first we need to see what Jesus is protecting his disciples from. And what Jesus is protecting his disciples from is the danger of the cultural tide. And so he's he's telling them, and, and even telling us, I think, flee the cultural tide, flee the danger of cultural tide. This really deals with our discernment. For the disciples, they need to listen in obedience. It deals with our discernment, that of which the disciples really uh, didn't have, and they they were going to develop, especially as Christ descended to heaven and sent the Holy Spirit down to lead them and to guide them. So the first danger of the disciples is being swept away by the crowd. The Jews have been waiting for this king and they're opportunist and they're, they're ready for a change. Now, John doesn't give us much detail in his recording of Jesus' fifth sign. In fact, some have even said that, they, or they've argued that it isn't a sign at all and then they tried to explain it away. But it's important for us to recognize at least a few of the details that John shares in his account of Jesus walking on the water. And the first one is, is seen that I, that I want us to make note of is seen there in verse, uh, verse 17. After getting into the boat, they started across the Sea of Capernaum, and it had already become dark. And Jesus had not yet come to them. Many of the commentators acknowledge that John often writes with two meanings, and in fact here he's writing with two meanings. And probably intends for us to recognize that This is more than just a description of nightfall. I think it also reflects the theological perspective of his disciples as they're learning about Jesus, uh, about the Messiah. They're still learning and they, they still need to see Jesus for who he is and not for who they want him to be. That's really one of the issues that they're wrestling with and why Jesus is sending his disciples away. Jesus will not be manipulated by the crowds he will not be manipulated by, uh, by the, uh, the masses of people and throngs of people that, 
that come and want to force him into some model or shape his mission. We can see where this is going. Their minds are are set on what Jesus can do for them as a crowd. So he tells them, get in the boat, the disciples, go to the other side of the sea. Now, I'm sure some of the disciples would have been on board with what the crowd was wanting. Think about it for a minute. Judas would have been the treasurer of the kingdom. Right? James and John, sons of thunder, they would have ruled beside Jesus and, 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 and thunderously kept people in order, making certain that no one was rebelling. Peter, he would have said, I'll be the prime minister, perhaps. They would have been all in support of what the crowd was wanting to do in making Jesus king. So I don't want us to miss what the crowd was guilty of here because I think, I think it has very great import for where we are as a congregation, as a people, in our walk with Christ, in our relationship with Christ. They, they were guilty. The crowd was guilty of the same tactic Satan used in Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. When Satan tried to shape Christ's mission, his messianic destiny, he tells Christ, use your power for your own glory. In other words, turn this stone into bread. Satisfy your hunger. Or he tells him, throw yourself off this cliff. You know that God will provide angels to come and and to catch you. Or he says, bow to me and I'll make you king over all that you see, showing him all of the land. The crowds had misappropriated And misunderstood what Christ had really come to do. That is to restore this relationship between God and his creation. Now for the church. The American church. I I, I think we're in danger as well. I think we're in danger and, and we need to be aware. And heed the instruction of this passage. The cultural tide regarding Christianity and the church in America is one of. Great deception. It's one that calls us to take it easy. Think about it for a minute. It's one that calls us to take it easy, to relax, to live luxuriously. It's a subtle seduction attempting to lure us to a life of ease. One that promotes bigger barns and more possessions at the expense of carrying out the Great Commission. There's a cultural tide seeking to shape the call of discipleship for the Christian into a way that's, that's unbiblical and really runs counter to God's design for his children. It tempts us to remain complacent and unconcerned about sin in our own lives. It, it promotes a false sense of discipleship, luring us away from engaging in spiritual disciplines for the sake of righteous living. It tempts us to be unfaithful unbiblical stewards of what God has entrusted to us. This temptation, it it beckons us to ask the wrong questions. What about my rights? Instead of the right question, what is my responsibility as a follower of Christ? It tempts us, listen, it tempts us through entertainment, through our hobbies, through empty affections to abandon our posts as parents and and chief disciple makers of our children in our homes. It lures us away from from generational discipleship, thinking perhaps that that, that we've entered into a, a resting season of life. The older we get, we're tempted to become disengaged in disciple making. Are simply to accept this is the way it is, and we 
We can't make a difference. Here's the thing. The the temptation we face, church, is a temptation to pragmatism. It's one that promotes self-reliance instead of Godward dependence. This temptation, it it lures us away from the God-ordained work of, of carrying out the biblical mandate in our daily lives. Make disciples of all nations. This is why Christ is here to teach his disciples in order to live for him, to live for his glory. We must constantly remind ourselves of the responsibility of engaging the lost of our communities, of living out the gospel and discipling the converted. The temptation we face is to allow the culture, our friends, or the world, to shape our understanding of Jesus and what it means to live in relation to Him. You see that? The temptation is to bring... Christ to our terms rather than to faithfully submit to his terms. This is why he tells his disciples, leave, go, go to the other side. Don't get caught up in what the culture is doing. Don't get caught up in what this crowd is pursuing. He protects them and he tells them to go. That's the discernment I'm talking about, that we as followers of Christ, with the indwelling Holy Spirit as we've sung about, have a responsibility to live and to walk in. This is what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 12. Perhaps you've memorized the passage, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or reasonable service or act of worship. And do not be conformed to the world. Right, But be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove that which is the will of God, the good and acceptable and perfect will. Or Colossians 3, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Listen, there's a, there's a challenge that we need to hear as the church. And the challenge is to flee the danger of cultural tide. To look into God's word to determine how we are to live. The call and responsibility of the Christian life. The call and responsibility of the convert to Christ. What are we to do? How are we to engage daily in living for Christ? Now, I know the passage just says that he sent them over to the other side. Of the sea. You're getting a lot out of he sent them over to the other side of the sea. I think it's important for us to understand what was happening. What was going on with the crowd coming in trying to make Jesus be the savior that they wanted him to be. And not whom he had come to reveal himself to be. So perceivably the disciples have left one storm. That which was brewing in the crowd wanting to shape and force Jesus into their own understanding of of who he was to be as Messiah. Only to find themselves in the midst of another storm in the middle of the sea. The second thing I want us to see from this passage this morning is the challenge that we as disciples of Christ would delight in following Christ's lead. That we would delight in following 
Christ's lead. Verses 18 and 19 say, The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Then when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, but they were, they were frightened. Now, the picture is they, they have been rowing since it turned dark. And the other Gospels tell us that it was in the fourth watch of the night, so it was nearing daybreak. And they had been rowing for all night and had only gone about three or four miles. And the storm was a, a ferocious storm that had come up on the sea. Now, it was difficult for them, and they were, they were making headway, but they were making headway very slowly. They had been battling the waves and the storm for quite some time throughout the night, and they were getting weary. And as I read this passage, I, I began to ask the question, do you think Jesus knew the storm was coming? He sent him out on the sea, and I think he knew the storm was coming. We're talking about the sovereign Savior here. We're talking about the one who has told them he knows. He knows what the crowd's about to do, and he sends them away. I think Jesus knew the disciples were going into the storm. I think he knew about what was going to happen as they ventured out across the sea that night. And I want you to see that sometimes we find ourselves in the midst of a storm because we've disobeyed God and we've brought consequences upon ourselves. But sometimes we find ourselves in, in the midst of a storm because we have obeyed, because we have followed the directions of Christ. This is important for us to see. If we are following Christ, we, we need to recognize that we won't always have uh, an easy time. It won't always be simple and things won't always work out just the way we hope they would. There's going to be some struggle. There's going to be some growth that has to happen. And that growth is going to come through some hard circumstances and some difficult times. And so taking into context what's going on in the story and seeing what Jesus is doing and showing and leading his disciples to leave. I want to ask us for a moment just to consider. Consider what would happen if the church in America rises up, if, if Crosspoint rises up and every believer in the midst of the body forsakes the vain idols of our culture. What if, what if believers across this nation got serious in their walk with Christ? What if we began taking discipleship seriously and began intentionally seeking out relationships so that we would grow and, and, and mature in our faith? What if we would go and find those mature believers and ask them, will you disciple me? Will you teach me how to walk with Christ as you walk with Christ? Will you hold me accountable? Will you seek Will you, will, you, will you hold me accountable in my daily life? And will you, will you teach me how to pray, how to, how to evangelize, how to disciple my children, how to follow Christ? Now, consider what would happen in our homes, in our lives, if we became fully committed to carrying out the Great Commission in the nations. Consider what would happen if we became the biblical stewards of God's creation and all that he has entrusted to us that he's called us to be. 
What would, what would the storm look like internally if we were to forsake the gods of materialism and luxury for the sake of engaging the lost for Christ? What would the storm look like internally if we guarded media access for our children? What would it look like in our homes if, if we take that stance, parents? What would the storm look like in our lives if we disciplined ourselves for godliness and we began guarding our time and being students of God's word instead of students of the media or television or entertainment? What kind of storms would arise in our lives if we walked in obedience to Christ? That's the real question I want us to answer. What kind of storms would arise in our lives if we walked in obedience to Christ? If we denied ourselves, took up our cross and followed Christ. We could go on and on, couldn't we? Asking the questions of what kind of storms would arise in our lives if we got serious about walking in discipleship, about putting away the things that that hinder us. You see, we at least we know in part. But in, in many ways, I think we get caught up in the, the cultural tide of consumeristic Christianity. It's a a slow slope. It's a gradual slope that causes us to be complacent and causes us to to grow lax and unconcerned, become unconcerned about the lost, perhaps. Those we work with causes us to become unconcerned about, well, about being intentional for Discipling even our children, it, it causes us to be unconcerned about what God is desiring to do in our lives and where he's leading us. These are the, the questions that we must consider. If each of us were asked even this morning, maybe to stand and recite scripture. Just to show our, our devotion and how we have really been, uh, how we have really been Wanting to serve Christ and loving God and pursuing Him. How how many would we even be able to stand and recite? Just asking that question as a gauge for us. We, We say we love Christ. We're devoted to Christ. We want to follow Christ. But when it comes down to it, what in our life reflects this urgency in walking with Christ and walking in obedience to Christ? The disciples were frightened. It says there in verse 20, or verse 19, when they saw him walking on the sea, drawing near to the boat, they were frightened. And Jesus said to him, it is I, do not be afraid. You know, in the darkness, maybe they were wondering if they'd made the right decision. The waves crashing in on the boat and rocking the boat. Some, uh, some of them were rowing. Some of them were probably bailing water out of the boat. They were being tossed about like a like a buoy at sea, drifting. And then they see what Matthew tells us is this apparition walking toward them on top of the water. Now, the point of the sign, the fifth sign is this. 
We've got Jesus, the sovereign Lord, wanting to show his disciples that he himself is the sovereign Lord. And he suspends the law of gravity so that he walks over the water. This is the miracle. As he walks over the water, he comes to the boat as they're there in the midst of this storm, in the midst of the rough sea. And they're fearful. They're fearful because they don't know what they're seeing in the midst of the darkness. And Jesus speaks to them and says, it is I. Stop being afraid. In the midst of the storm, in the midst of the fear they're experiencing, it was the voice of Christ that calmed them. It was His presence that calmed them. Jesus came to them and He said, Stop being afraid. For the disciples, they immediately, the fear left them and They received him, verse 21 says, they were willing to receive him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. I think this is encouraging for us, incredibly encouraging for us because as as we consider the disciples and their obedience to Christ, wanting to walk with Christ, wanting to follow what he is telling them to do, we have a very real example of them going where he has told them to, experiencing a physical storm, in life, experiencing a physical storm in the midst of the sea, and Christ coming to them in the midst of the sea with his presence, being there and comforting them, saying, you have no reason to be afraid because I am here. And I want that to apply to us. We've got, on the one hand, this cultural tie that would seek to shape, reshape, a a biblical definition of what it means to walk as a disciple of Christ. And then we see Jesus showing his disciples, telling them to leave. And and in essence, we would would understand this, this call for discernment for us as we walk with Christ and walk in obedience to Christ, find ourselves sometimes in difficult circumstances, believing that we have heard God to be true, believing that we have... We're following and walking according to what he is telling us to do. We're walking in obedience. But then we find ourselves sometimes in the midst of difficult circumstances, in the midst of a difficult life situation. But we're certain that we have heard from God. You know, as I reflect on this passage, I think about just a lot of times what happens for uh, for students perhaps is, you know, in, in college they experience some of these discouragements when maybe they share with their parents, hey, listen, God is calling me to, uh, to not go into this field, but to pursue, uh, to pursue full-time vocational ministry. I, I've heard God's calling. And, and that discouragement comes in the form perhaps of, of parents not understanding or, or maybe it's for someone who says, you know, God is really calling me and dealing with me to engage in foreign missions. And there's the, uh, there's the loving family member who comes and says, Oh, listen, that's not safe. I don't think that's what God's calling you to do. But, but listen, you know. You know that to listen to the family member and to disobey God is, is to walk in, in disobedience and to be in the wrong place. But listen, uh, what I'm saying is as we obey Christ, there are, there are difficulties that come up. There are struggles that happen. When we walk in obedience to Christ, it's not always easy. But... Take courage from the disciples and from what Christ comes and says to the disciples. In the midst of their obedience, in the midst of the storm, he comes to them. And what does he say? It is I. In other words, I'm God. 
I am here, the same word that's used for the I am statements, ego and me, I am, it is I, I'm here, don't be afraid. And immediately as they received him into the boat, the, the boat was at the other side of the shore. There's another point in the miracle there where uh, God's presence brings the calm, Christ's presence in our life it, as we walk in obedience to him, walk faithfully trusting in him, knowing that he provides that he is there and that he leads us even through through the storm, through the difficult journeys. This passage teaches us about Christ. It teaches about him as the sovereign savior, as the one who is the ruler, as the one who can defy gravity and walk on water, as the one who is providing all that we would ever need and ever do need. I want to I want to close this morning by reading from Psalm 107, beginning in verse 23. We see Christ in this light, in this passage. Psalm 107, 23. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they've, they've seen the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he spoke and raised up a stormy wind which lifted the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens. They went down to the depths. Their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered like a drunken man and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He caused the storm to be still, so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Then when they were glad, because they were quiet, so he guided them. Then they were glad, because they were quiet. So he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders up to the sons of men. Let them extol him also in the congregation of the people and praise him at the seat of the elders. This morning, I, I want to ask us the question, two questions, in fact. One is, as a disciple of Christ, do you find yourself being pulled by the cultural tide, the consumeristic Christianity, the tide that, that is so prevalent in in America when it comes to church? Is it just something we do? Do you find your, your, your view of Christ even be affected and impacted by that and your view of, of discipleship? And secondly, I want to ask you to consider this morning, what does it look like in our lives, in your life, in my life, to walk in obedience to Christ? Do we foresee any storms that might rise in our lives as a result of surrendering to Christ in obedience in in any area, in every area of our lives. That's a real challenge for us to consider this morning. And as we consider it and as we respond to what the Lord is doing this morning in our own hearts, I want to encourage you, if there's an area of commitment that, that you need to surrender to the Lord in, I want to challenge you to do that, to surrender Maybe it's to find a brother or a sister to be accountable to and accountable with. Maybe it's to ask the Lord to help you to be more committed in 
and, and faithful and, and exercising spiritual disciplines to grow in godliness. I, I don't know. I, I can't foresee everything that the Lord is doing in our lives this morning and in our hearts. But I know that God desires to work. I know that the Lord Jesus desires to see us walk with him in obedience. And so as I pray this morning and, and, and close out our time together in the word, I want to ask you to consider what God is doing and make the commitments that he's leading you to make or rejoice in what he is doing in your life. Be encouraged, for the Lord says, I am with you. It is I. Don't be afraid. Let's pray. Father, we know that you lead us and you guide us. And there are times when you're guiding us that we walk through very tough and difficult circumstances and we might even question, is this where we need to be? But Lord, you certainly are sovereign over all of this. And as the disciples were learning to see Jesus as the sovereign Lord, help us, Father, to see Christ, to see you as the sovereign Lord of all creation. And help us, Lord, to exercise great trust in following you and walking with you and being obedient. Lord, we, we want to worship you with all that we have this morning. And we pray, God, that you would be pleased in the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.